But today we are going to be uh, continuing on in, in Mark chapter 10. And uh, Mark 10 this morning really is a, a, a turning point in the gospel of Mark. So up until this point, the first nine chapters, uh, we've been looking at Jesus' early ministry, mostly up in Galilee, some in Judea. And uh, he's been teaching the people, but Mark chapter 10 begins a final journey. It's the beginning of the end because Christ is headed to Jerusalem for the final time. This is the beginning of, of when he moves into his final journey down south. And it's the last section of Christ's ministry on earth the first time. And so he knows that time is short. This is the beginning of his, his final journey. And so the focus as we move through, beginning in chapter 10, is going to shift a little bit. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching the people, and he would explain things to the disciples. But we're going to see as we move through that the rest of the book is largely going to be focused on Christ teaching the disciples specifically. He wants them to understand the, the final lessons he has for them before he goes to the cross. Although he's not going to only teach the disciples, he is going to continue to teach the people, and he wants them to see the big picture. And we're going to see that today in his interaction with the Pharisees. They're going to ask him a pointed question, and instead of answering that specific question, he's going to go to a foundational description of a larger topic. And so while you, if you look in your Bibles at, at the first part of Mark chapter 10, it probably has a, a title that says something like, Jesus teaches on divorce, or, you know, a teaching on divorce. And while that is true, and Christ is certainly going to touch on that topic, I think that what we're really going to find today as we move through is that it, it's a broader discussion of a topic that Jesus wants to touch on, which is marriage, and he's going to focus on God's perspective on marriage, and then he'll use that foundational teaching and apply it to divorce. But the thrust of Jesus' teaching this morning is going to be on marriage itself. And so if you will, turn to Mark 10 if you haven't already, and we'll just start with the first verse. It says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And so this is where we see the beginning of this final journey. So he gets up and he begins to move from Capernaum in the north, from Galilee, down south towards Jerusalem. And he's focused on the end game. This is where Christ is going to be focused for the rest of this gospel. And in Luke's gospel, the way that he says it is this way, this turning point. In Luke 9:51, when the days grew, drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some translations broaden that to he set his face like a flint because that, that phrase, set his face, means to be hard as stone. Jesus was laser-focused on the end game. That's what he's about beginning here. And he's going to follow a traditional route from the north, where he's been teaching in Galilee, all the way down to Jerusalem to get there for the Passover. And this was a route that most northern Jews took to get down to Jerusalem when they had to go every year for the feasts. And so he's going to begin coming south, and then they detour to the east across the Jordan. And we see that in verse 1 there, where it says he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the reason this was a traditional route, even though it's longer, is because in the middle is Samaria. And Samaria was a Gentile region, and most Jews didn't want to travel through Samaria, so they would circumvent it by going around to the east of the Jordan. Now this is going to become important because one of the places that Jesus is going to be teaching is in Perea. And Perea was ruled by Herod Antipas, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and so that'll come into play this morning as well. 
And so as he's on this journey down to Jerusalem for the final time, he does what he always does, and he continues to teach. That's what Mark says. He once more began to teach them, as was his custom. In Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 2, he adds, and he healed them. So Jesus is doing what he's been doing since the very beginning, and when we began reading Mark in chapter 1, he's teaching and healing, performing miracles. The miracles are there merely to provide proof that what he's teaching carries the weight and the authority of God, not just another human teacher. And so Jesus is continuing to do this, but with an understanding that this is his final opportunity to get the people to see the big picture, being who God is, who Christ is, and who they are in relation to the Father and the Son. So that's the context as we move into chapter 10. And so now we get to a specific altercation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And this is going to happen, it's, we've seen it happen frequently, and it happens again here. And you may wonder, well, why, why do they keep doing this? They've already kind of talked to Jesus, and every time they seem to lose out on these altercations. Well, there was no Twitter, or Snapchat, or Instagram, or Facebook. So just because one group of Pharisees had interacted with Jesus and realized they probably shouldn't do that again for their own reputation, that doesn't mean that all of them understood that. And so as he's moving south, there's a new group of Pharisees who come, and in verse 2 we read this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. So the Pharisees come, and, and the first thing that we'll see that they're doing is testing him. And that Greek phrase, testing him, is parazo, and it specifically means to test something to prove it false. There's a separate Greek word that means to test something to try to see if it's true. That's not what they're doing. In fact, this word is used in Matthew 4.1, where it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted is the same word here translated tested. So the Pharisees are not really interested in what Jesus has to say on this particular matter. What they're interested in doing is trying to trip him up. So really, this is a setup. The Pharisees come with a question that they believe they can use in order to erode some of Jesus' popularity with the people, to try to take his reputation down a notch because he's taking their place as the one most respected teacher. So they don't really have a desire to hear what Jesus has to say. They're really trying just to trip him up. And the weapon they use in this, this trap is the issue of divorce. That's the question they choose in order to try to tempt and trap Jesus. In verse 2b, it says they, they came to test him and ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Mark here gives us the abbreviated version of the question they ask because there was kind of an implied understanding. In the Jewish law, it was allowed to divorce a wife. So they're not really asking if, they're asking when, on what grounds. In Matthew 19.3, Matthew gives us the full question that was asked. He says some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? That's what they're asking. When is it okay? What are the grounds and the circumstances where divorce is okay? And there were two schools of thought at the time in first century Judaism. There were two well-known rabbis who had two very different philosophies on divorce. And so people generally tended to fall in one of these two camps. And so one of the schools of thought followed Rabbi Shammai and said that divorce was only allowed in the case of sexual immorality. The other school of thought followed Rabbi Hillel, 
who said that divorce was allowed in any circumstance that displeased the husband, even something such as not preparing a meal properly. And that was uh, an example that was actually written into his writing. So you don't cook the meal properly, your husband is allowed to divorce you. Those were the two schools of thought. Now, for the Pharisees to use this issue of divorce to try to trap Jesus and erode his personality was a pretty shrewd choice on their part. A, because it was just a hot topic of the day, and they figure no matter which side Jesus falls on, whether he sides with Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel, he's going to alienate some of his following. He's going to lose some interest, and some people are going to say, no, I'm not really interested in what you have to say anymore. So they figure no matter what side he chooses, we're going to win. It's a win-win. But for them, there was an even better outcome because, remember, they're in Perea, on the east side of the Jordan, which is controlled by Herod Antipas. And we talked about Herod and John the Baptist a few weeks ago. Anybody remember what Herod's family situation was? Yeah, he he had divorced his first wife and married his half-niece, who had divorced her first husband. So Herod Antipas was living in a double-divorce situation. They had married each other, so they, they had violated what most would consider to be a conservative interpretation of the Jewish law. And you remember there was this confrontation between Herod and John the Baptist because John spoke up about this. And he said, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It at first got him thrown in prison and eventually got him beheaded. And so the Pharisees are thinking, hey, this is great for us because if he happens to side with Rabbi Hillel and saying that really divorce can be done for any reason, then you know, that's okay. Some people aren't going to be happy with that, and we win. If he sides with Rabbi Shammai, not only is he still going to lose some people following him, but best case scenario, Herod gets wind of it, and we get the same outcome as we saw with John the Baptist. Herod puts Jesus in prison, maybe even kills him because of the region they're in. We're done. It was a shrewd choice on their part. And so they set this trap for Jesus with divorce being the topic they choose to try to to get him in trouble. But even though it was debated hotly all through the first century, we're going to see that Jesus, as he often did, deftly sidesteps their trap and and refocuses the discussion, which is what we'll see in verse 3. So they pose this question, what are the grounds on which a husband can divorce his wife? And in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? So Jesus goes back to his well-used tactic of, I'm going to answer your question with a question of my own to redirect you somewhere else. And Jesus goes right to, what does the scripture say? So immediately, before the question has barely left the Pharisee's mouth, Jesus says, no, this is not a question of rabbinical interpretation. This is a question of scriptural direction. I'm not going to get involved with you on whether Shammai or Hillel have the correct interpretation. I want you to tell me, what did Moses say in the law? Now, that ought to be the first thing that we do whenever there's a question on a a political issue, a social issue, even a scientific issue. Whatever it is, like Christ, our first answer ought to be, what does this say? And once we've informed ourselves based on Scripture, then we can begin looking at the application. But not before we've gone to the foundation of what does the Scripture say. I don't want to hear what the pundits have to say, what the talking heads have to say. What does Scripture say? And after we know that, then we'll start a conversation. 
So the next thing we see then, as Jesus refocuses them to the scriptures, is they're going to provide an answer. But before we get to their answer, we need to know what the scripture says about this so we can see how the Pharisees answer. Now, the primary text on divorce in the Mosaic Law is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. If you will, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. So Moses says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes out and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now this is the scripture that the Pharisees are going to turn to to answer Jesus' question. This was the primary place in which the Old Testament law spoke of divorce. There are others. But we need to look and see what is this passage really talking about. And the focus here is not on laying out a cumulative groundwork of of circumstances under which divorce is permitted. The focus is on what do you do when a divorce has already happened, the wife left, and then she wants to come back to the original husband because her second husband either sent her away or died. And Moses said that's not permitted. That's what's actually being discussed. That's the focus, is how do you handle this circumstance in which there's already been a divorce and the wife wants to return? Now, although the focus is not on the grounds for divorce, that is discussed, and Moses provides information on on what a legal divorce would be. When he says that, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So as Moses says, look, this divorce has already happened, he includes the single circumstance under which it would have been legal for it to happen, meaning there was some indecency. Now that word, Indecency appears in the Old Testament 54 times. 48 of the 54 times, it's translated nakedness. The other six times, it's either translated shame, bareness, or indecency. So you can see what the word means. It plainly means in this context that the woman has created some kind of situation in which she has acted sexually immoral. This word always means Shame associated with nakedness or bareness. So Moses lays out this law that says, look, the only legitimate grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. Now, the second thing he says is that you also have to put this divorce in writing. He says if he has written her a certificate of divorce. Now, the reason that's in there is it was protection for the woman. Because this prevented the husband from merely saying that there had been some kind of sexual immorality and being able to send the woman away with no proof. Because he needed a legal certificate, there had to be some investigation and there had to be proof provided that this had actually happened. This was included to protect the woman from the whimsy of a husband who had no proof. So there's the primary text. That's what it's talking about. There are a few others, we won't go to them, but Deuteronomy 22.19 said that if a man accused a new wife of not being a virgin but is wrong, he can't divorce her, ever. That was because at that point he had already impugned her reputation and she wouldn't have been able to get remarried 
so he's not able to send her away. Deuteronomy 22.29 says, if a man violates a woman prior to marriage, he must marry her and cannot ever divorce her. Why? Well, in that case, the man has already committed sexual immorality, so he can't send the woman away even for the same thing. We see this in the prophets as well. Jeremiah 3, verse 8, speaks about this. We know that God often spoke of Israel as his bride, and unfortunately, often as an unfaithful bride. Jeremiah 3, 8 says, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. So there's God speaking about spiritually divorcing Israel because of her spiritual infidelity. Isaiah 50, verse 1, says something similar. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, in Malachi, he's speaking on God's behalf to the priests, so specifically the priesthood. And the priests had been complaining that God wasn't listening to their prayers and he wasn't accepting their offerings. And so they come to Malachi and question, why is God not listening to us? And Malachi says this, Malachi 2, 14, he's not listening because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God says, I'm not receiving your prayers because you're dealing treacherously with your wives, and specifically, the way you're dealing treacherously with them is through divorce, because you're handling it in an inappropriate manner. So we see that that God in the prophets uses divorce in the same way, only associated with, with immorality, unfaithfulness. So now that we have an idea of what the Old Testament law says, where Jesus says, all right, Pharisees, you want to talk about this, this topic, tell me what Moses says. And let's take a look at their answer in verse 4. Let me go back to Mark. And they said to him, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Really? That's all you took out of it? That wasn't even the thrust of the passage, was it? All they focused on was the fact that as long as we write it down, we're good. A total misapplication of the reading of the law. They don't consider the laws about when you can't divorce a wife. They don't consider the restrictions of divorce being on the grounds of sexual misconduct alone. They don't consider that God associated divorce only with spiritual prostitution. They only focus on the fact that, yeah, as long as we put it in writing, we're good. A total misapplication of the law. Now, at some level, they understood that they really weren't answering Jesus' question completely honestly. They, they sort of get this, because if you look at the words in verse 3, Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And in verse 4, what do they answer? Moses permitted the following. See, Jesus asked what the rule was, and they answered with the exception. Here's the loophole, Jesus. He said, no, that's not what I asked you, is it? A total misapplication of the law. So Jesus is going to correct them. He's going to expose their misunderstanding here. So they, he says, what does Moses command you? Right? All of the, the restrictions, the understanding, the context of the Old Testament teaching about, about divorce. They say, well, he said if we, if we write it down, it's okay. Jesus says this in verse 5. or verse, uh, Yeah, verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
So Jesus says, no, this is not, you didn't give me the rule, you gave me the exception, and even that is only because of your hardness of heart. Now, hardness of heart, that phrase is interesting. Other than the parallel account of Mark 10 here in Matthew 19, that phrase is only used one other time in relation to, to Jesus saying that someone was showing a hardness of heart. It's in Mark 16, 14. This is after Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. Some people have already seen him, and they've come to the 11, the remaining apostles, to explain that Jesus has returned to life. Mark 16, 14 says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and for their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus here says, you're being hard-hearted because you're not believing the accounts. There are people that you know and trust, that you've known for years, people that know me personally and traveled with me for three years, There's numerous of them, and they're all coming to you saying the same thing, which, by the way, is what I told you was going to happen. And despite all that, you're not believing it. So hardness of heart, then, is something that ought to be clear and easy to understand, but is refused based on a stubbornness and an outright refusal to accept what is clearly and plainly true. And Jesus says, that's why Moses gave you the permission to, of divorce is because you are not seeing what you ought to clearly see from the scriptures. And what was that? That God values marriage highly. That's all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus says the only reason that that permission is in there is because you're being too spiritually immature to see the truth of God's view of marriage. You're not getting it. That's why he had to put that in place. It was an attempt to control and regulate divorce so that something worse wouldn't happen, such as a man simply killing his wife if he thought he had no other recourse and he wasn't pleased with her anymore. Matthew Henry says it this way, Christ here shows that the reason why Moses and his law permitted divorce was such as that they ought not to make use of that permission. For it was only for the hardness of their hearts so that none must put away their wives, but such as are willing to own that their hearts were so hard as to need this permission. Jesus says not only is is this not the rule, but you shouldn't even undertake the exception without being willing to own up to the fact that you're too spiritually immature and arrogant to proceed down any other path. Not exactly the response the Pharisees were hoping for, is it? And so the next thing that Jesus is going to do after he has said, look, this this is only allowed because you don't understand God's view of marriage. You don't understand how highly he prizes it. That's the only reason that's there. So he's going to give them a lesson. And Jesus here goes to God's perspective on marriage. And that's why I said this, this text really isn't even on divorce. That happens to be the topic at hand. But the thrust of Jesus' teaching here is not on divorce, but on marriage. And the first thing that he's going to teach on is the, God's original plan for marriage. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So he's going all the way back to the beginning. He said, look, you're missing the whole context. 
you ask me about divorce, but you don't understand the foundation, I'm going to get super foundational with you here. We're going to go back to the beginning. And the way he phrases it is interesting because, well, it's not the main thrust of the text. I, I wanted to point out that Jesus is claiming divinity here because he's claiming to know God's intent and motive for marriage. Moses didn't even claim that. He just wrote down what God said and did. Jesus is claiming to understand God's motive. He says, from the very beginning of creation, here's how God intended it to be. Interesting. Jesus could have directly answered the Pharisees' question. Right? Remember, they said, hey, hey, what's the grounds for divorce? He could have answered that directly because he really had already earlier in his ministry. Back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus has already proclaimed this. You have heard it said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Right? So there's Jesus already, even before this altercation, knowing that what's being taught is, as long as you put in writing, it's good. He said, that's what you've heard. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus has answered their specific question in a prior teaching. But he doesn't choose to reiterate that in this circumstance. He could have just said, look, I've already said this. Here's the rule. But instead, he goes back to the beginning to a foundational understanding. And so that we're clear on, on what he was saying in Matthew 5, that word unchastity, where he says, except for the reason of unchastity, the one exception, that's the Greek word porneia. It's the word we get pornography from. And just like the word indecency in the original language in Deuteronomy, this word specifically means illicit sexual conduct. That's what Jesus provided as the exception. So Jesus reiterated what Moses has already said. But he doesn't go back to that specific answer. Instead, he goes to the beginning and said, let me, let me tell you what, what God plans for marriage. Now, why would he do this? For me, it, it, it's kind of like this. Most of you know that, that I'm a pilot. As, as pilots, we have procedures for how to land a plane when things have gone horribly wrong. For instance, you're out over the ocean and uh, your plane catches fire, you lose your engines, and you have to land in the water. That's called ditching. We train for that. Right, there are specific configurations of the aircraft, specific airspeeds you fly, a specific geometry where you approach relative to the waves. We train for that. Same thing over land. If something happens, you can't make it to an airport. We train for how to land in a field. But when we first teach a pilot to fly, we don't start by teaching him how to crash. That's not where we would begin. You got to teach him how to fly the plane first. You got to understand how the plane works, how you interface with it, what the, the envelope is, the boundaries that you have to stay within to safely operate the plane. After you know those basics, now we can look at, okay, when everything's coming off the rails, how are we going to handle it? That's what Jesus is saying here. You're trying to figure out how to crash the plane. You don't even know how to fly it. You don't get what marriage is. We need to start there before you can really understand what God has to say about when things maybe are going wrong. So that's what he does. He says, from the beginning of creation, let me tell you what God planned. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis 1.27 there. Direct quote from, from the Old Testament scripture. And those two words, male and female, are singular. He said God made one male. He made one female. He put them together. And his intent is that that would be the end of the discussion for life. 
You say, well, how do you know that? It doesn't say for life in there. It just says one male and one female. Okay, fair. Let's consider a few things about Adam and Eve's marriage. Ever thought about that, really? It's interesting, right? God created Adam. The first thing he said is, it's not good that you're alone. All the wives are like, amen. (laughs) All right? God knew that. And so he created Eve. Now, what God did not do is create 10 or 12 or 20 women and say, all right, Adam, look, I want you to go out there. I want you to kind of find yourself. I want you to figure out what the compatibility looks like. Go date some of the women and then come back and you tell me which one you want for a wife. He could have, right? He could have made as many women as he wanted to. He made one. Now, he also didn't say, hey, I made you one woman. Why don't you see how things work out? If they're not working out and she burns your dinner, come back and tell me and I'll make another one. That wasn't an option either. He made one and then he married him. If you consider that God was actually the, the one that married Adam and Eve, he was the presiding pastor. There was no one else. He even gave the bride away. Genesis 2.22 says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God walked down the aisle and gave Eve away, and then he kind of swapped places and married them. It was all him. He didn't give Adam a second choice. He didn't give him multiple choices. He said, look, I've made you one helper, one soulmate. We're done. And he said it was very good. Anybody consider how long Adam and Eve were married? Who's been married more than 50 years in here? I know we have a couple. I don't know if they're here. There's one. There's a couple. Anybody more than 60? No? Oh, yeah? More than 60? How long? That's fantastic. (laughs) That's awesome. 62 years. So let's see. what, What is that? 60, the diamond anniversary. All right, so the, the others that have been married more than 50, right, you guys have, have reached your gold anniversary, working on emerald maybe for, for some of you, diamond for you guys, fantastic. What's the 900th anniversary? Because Adam and Eve were married 930 years. At least that's how long Adam lived. So as long as Eve lived the same length of time he did, they were married for 930 years. I mean, once you get to 900, it's like, oh, it's the Milky Way galaxy, right? <laughs> There's nothing left, right? <laughs> so, I, I owe you a galaxy, honey. I mean, that's amazing. God said one man, one woman, for your entire life, even if it's 930 years, that's my plan. That's it. Next thing we see in verse 7 through 8 is God's unconventional math for marriage. Verse 7, Jesus continues. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Unconventional math for marriage here. So he moves from the foundational plan, one man, one woman, put together for life. He says, that was, that's the foundation. Let's talk about the substance. What does it really look like when that happens? And the first thing we see in this is the priority of the marriage union. In verse 7, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2.24. So he's moved from a quote of Genesis 1.27 to a quote of Genesis 2.24, and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Now this shows the priority of marriage, because what is the first and strongest relationship in a person's life? Parent-child. That's where we start. That's the foundational and the strongest relationship we have for the first third to half of our life. Parent-child. 
And it's intended to be strong. God made it that way. We just had a baby. That baby's done nothing for me, but I would die for it. Right? That's, that's the way God designed it. It's strong. And yet he says, you're going to leave that relationship and you're going to move into a higher relationship. You're going to move from biological to covenant. Because remember back in Malachi 2.16, God said, your wife is your wife by covenant. Now we talked about this a little bit when we taught through Song of Solomon. I'm not going to go back through all of it, but, but the marriage relationship is the only covenant human relationship that God gives to us. God has a covenant relationship with his people, and the only picture of that he gives to us in the human realm is the marriage relationship. It's a covenant. And God says that's a higher priority even than the parent-child relationship. You're going to leave the lesser to move to the greater. This is how I've designed it. Then we see the, the math part, because Jesus gives his own commentary here. It, it's pretty awesome anytime the word made flesh can give a commentary on the word written with pen, isn't it? So Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that's the way that Genesis 2.24 puts it. The two become one. That's in the positive. Jesus really wants them to understand what's being said because in his commentary, where he gives the, the next part of that verse, he puts it in the negative so they'll understand it. He said, so they're no longer two. He really wants you to get there. This is God's math. In marriage, one plus one equals one. And Jesus says, just in case maybe you missed that, one plus one does not equal two. There's one man, there's one woman, they're married, and there's one resulting entity. Not two, one. And this, I think, is, is really where Jesus is driving, and even as Christians, we need to understand that, because this is often how we think of marriage. All right, you got two entities, like these bricks, you stick them next to each other, you wrap them up with some duct tape, and, and now there's one brick, right? Bigger, badder, and better. Except in that case, there's still two bricks. You can cut that duct tape off, and those two bricks are just the same as they were before, and, and now you got two bricks. That's how often we view marriage. There's a man and a wife, and we stick them together, and, you know, we call it good. Jesus says, no, it's more fundamental than that. That's not the way that I see marriage. God said in Genesis, the two become one. I want you to understand it's no longer two. So it's really more like this. How many of you had coffee this morning when you came in? How many, like me, did you put cream in your coffee and drink it the right way? Yeah, some of you, right? Some of you understand this. So when you do that, that's really what Jesus is saying marriage is like. You have the coffee, you have the cream, they're two separate liquids, you pour them together, and they become one new liquid. They're not two anymore. You can't stir the cream back out of the coffee. They've created something new. It's one homogenous mixture. So all you black coffee drinkers are being unbiblical. <laughs> um, one new mixture. Jesus said, that's, that's what I want you to get. You're not two bricks stuck together where you can then later be separated. You're one new mixture, and that can't be undone. It's new math. He wants people to understand that. So what's the application there for us in that case? I, I think even as Christians, often we still view our marriages really as a combination of, of one and one. Yeah, sure, we're wrapped together, but we still have those mindsets. 
He doesn't love me the way that he should. She doesn't appreciate me the way that she should. Me versus her, him versus me. That's not what God has in mind for marriage. You're one unit, it's a we. That's the goal. We ought to pray for that because that's not natural. That requires prayer. Prayer for unity in marriage so that we would be like the coffee and not like the bricks. Blended into one seamless new entity. It's critical for our own marriages, but also for our witnesses as marriages. We ought to pray for that. One plus one does not equal two. Well, the next thing we see is God's unique role in marriage, which is required, and it flows naturally from that last discussion. Jesus answers the question of, well, how does that happen? How do we really take one man and one woman and make one new thing where, where they're mixed together and, and not just two bricks taped up? Because you and I know that, even as that analogy, you're thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it really works all that well that way. Because naturally, we're like this. <laughs> we're not like the coffee and the cream that mix all nicely and become one fluid mixture. The spouses in a marriage are like oil and water. We don't mix very well. Why? Because it's a mixture of two broken, self-absorbed, selfish, self-seeking sinners. And you take two people like that and put them together and they're not going to mix naturally. That takes a supernatural work of God. That's why in verse 9, Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together. He says, look, God has a unique role in marriage you guys that he's talking to, the first century Jews, it sort of neglected that part. They're focused just on the legal ramifications. Jesus says, no, in order to accomplish God's plan of one man, one woman for life, being blended into one seamless new entity, God has to be at work. He's got to do the blending because the two of you don't naturally mix as sinners. God has to be involved. You think about marriage and it was no less a work of creation on day six than the creation of Adam and Eve themselves. Day six, God created Adam. He created Eve. And then he created marriage when he put them together and says, it's not good until you are together, and afterwards it is very good. Marriage was one of the creative actions God took on day six. We don't really often think about that, right? You go to, to Sunday school or vacation Bible school and you see all the things God made and you see man, right, on, on day six, Adam and Eve, but, but we ought to list marriage under day six as well. That was no less a creative action of God than the creation of the man and the woman themselves. And so having laid this foundation, Jesus finally circles back to the original question about divorce. He's just said, look, let's get foundational. Let me tell you what God's plan for marriage is. One man, one woman for life. Let me tell you what his math is. They become one unit, not two. Let me tell you what his role is. He had to take a hand in that, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. And then he finally takes that, and he then applies it to their original question, the latter half of verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now that phrase, let no man, is an imperative. Jesus is giving an order. He's saying, stop it. It's a command. 
And it's in the present tense. He's saying, stop doing what you're doing. This is what you guys are teaching. Divorce is okay, just write it down, it's good. That's what's being taught to the people. That's what's happening within my chosen people. Stop it. Jesus is being very directive here. It doesn't necessarily come out with the way it's translated as let, sort of like it's a recommendation. It's not. Jesus is being emphatic. He's giving a command. Quit it. So what's the the application there for us? We have to understand that without God, a marriage cannot be what it was intended to be. It can't. In order for two sinners to be blended together into a unit the way that God has in mind when he created marriage, God has to be at work, and we need to understand that for our own marriages and to understand issues in other marriages. Oh, there's common grace. Just like God allows the the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, he causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. There's common grace for even unbelievers who you, you know, and they may have a marriage that for all intents and purposes looks good. But it will never be the complete picture of what God designed a marriage to be without his hand working through two people being continuously sanctified through the Holy Spirit. A marriage without two believers will never be the full, deep, abiding, joyful, and persistent union that God designed it to be unless both people are under the hand of the Holy Spirit being sanctified. Any marriage other than that is subpar. That's his design. We need to understand that for our own marriages and and as we look at others. But secondly, we need to, (laughs) we should be grateful God was no less active in your marriage than he was in Adam and Eve's. He cares about your marriage. This is the highest form of human relationship he gives to his people. And he cares. He's involved. He is fully invested in your marriage, and that ought to make us hopeful, whether things are good or whether maybe there's a rocky spell. God cares. It's important to him. That's hopeful. Well, the last thing we see is is Jesus is going to take this and apply the foundational knowledge that he's just given the people, and he's going to apply it again to this original question. We do the mean verse 10. In the house, the disciples began questioning him. So this is after the, the public teaching. Jesus has finished teaching the people and the Pharisees. Now it's just him and his his inner circle. And they began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So the first thing we see here is the disciples' concern. Right After this is all said and done, and Jesus has provided this foundational teaching, they, they leave the crowds, they go back, it's just them, and as they often did, they have questions about what Jesus just taught. Hey, Jesus, you've you got to explain some things to us here. And we can see how pervasive this non-biblical view of marriage was in the culture at the time because they, they've got some serious concerns. Matthew, in his parallel account, Matthew 19.10, gives us a more specific question. It says, The disciples said to Jesus, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Right? They, 
They hear Jesus say, no, look, here's the plan. It's persistent. It's one plus one equals one forever. And they go, ooh, I don't know that I want to marry anymore. Right? Even the disciples had this unbiblical view of, oh, you know, I mean, it's probably a good thing, but it, if I don't like her, I'll, I'll just find another one. And Jesus has just blown that out of the water. And they say, maybe it's better not to marry. It was a, a, a radically different approach to marriage than, than what was prevalent in the society at the time, much like it is in our day. We all know that's how marriage is looked at by the larger society in the U.S. today. Oh, I'll try it. It'll be good for a little while, and then when we outgrow one another or we fall out of love, you know, we'll just get a divorce and I'll try something new. That's the way people in our day view it as well. Not the way Jesus viewed it. So he takes his foundational teaching, and we're going to see him apply it to the original question. All right, he said, all right, look, guys, <laughs> you're concerned. Let me, let me take what I taught out there and explain to you how this applies to the original question of when can a man divorce his wife. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. That her refers to the first wife. Jesus is saying, look, if you understand what I just taught, and you know that God designed marriage to be one man, one woman, for life, in a union that cannot just be pulled apart like untaping two bricks, then you'll understand that just because you write someone a certificate of divorce and move away from your first wife and go marry someone else, God still sees you as married to the first wife. Your certificate of divorce holds no legal standing in God's court. He said, so therefore, if you're still married to your first wife and you have a relationship with someone else, you're committing adultery in God's eyes. Same goes for the wife. She leaves her husband. Jesus says, that's why I gave you the foundational understanding so that you can understand how this applies to divorce, but it's not only to that. He's saying this is the foundational rule. If you understand God's intent, his design, his math, his role in marriage, now you can apply that understanding to, to when things start going wrong. And it applies not only to divorce, but to any marriage issue. That's why he went foundational. That's why he didn't just give them the simple answer to, okay, here's the one exception I've provided to divorce. Understand the basics. Learn how to fly the plane. And then you can figure out what the appropriate procedures are when, when you have a problem. Now, this foundational understanding helps us to, to understand one other exception that's given in the New Testament. There's one other thing that the Bible says is an acceptable situation for divorce. It has to do with a marriage that involves one believer and one unbeliever. Paul taught about it in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15, he says this, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. So he's saying, look, this wasn't a direct command, but this is my interpretation and application for you. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So if there's a believer and an unbeliever, but the unbeliever is willing to stay, the believer is not to initiate divorce. That's what he says. Just because they're an unbeliever is not grounds for divorce on the believer's part. However, yet if the unbelieving one leaves 
let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. So he says the believer shouldn't initiate divorce with an unbeliever, but if the unbeliever wants to leave, that's okay. Now we can use the foundational understanding of marriage that Jesus taught to see why this would be true. You see, if you have a a believer and an unbeliever, that marriage is not yet at the point that God designed it to be, is it? Because only one of those people is being sanctified through the Holy Spirit. That mixture still isn't going to work. Not the way God wants it to be. But if they're willing to stay, it means their heart is soft enough that they may yet see the light. God may open their eyes and bring them to an understanding, in which case, game on. Now you have two believers that can be consistently growing towards Christ-likeness in their marriage. But in the case of the believer or the unbeliever wanting to leave, that means their heart is hardened. They're not interested in what the believer's lifestyle and beliefs are. And if they have a hardened heart and they're not ever going to become or are interested in becoming a child of God, then that marriage is, it's okay to let that unbeliever go because you're not going to have the two parts that can make one consistent, unified whole the way that God desires. So the teaching Jesus gave helps us to understand that second exception. So those are the the understanding of marriage, and those are the exceptions. If you're curious, you can even find them on our the, the church's website. Under what we believe, there's a section called distinctives. It's those scriptural beliefs that, that may set this church apart from others because sometimes they're hard. Here's what it says about divorce. God designed the marriage covenant to be a lifelong bond with divorce permitted only in the case of unrepentant sexual sin or of desertion by an unbeliever. We just looked at both of those and how Christ taught foundationally on why that might be so. Now, what what do we do with this? What's the application for us? Look, this is not an easy topic, right? I'm aware that in a room this size, there is undoubtedly some hurt, maybe some shame, some regret for, for past history. Maybe there's some marriages in here that, you know, thoughts of divorce have even been bouncing around in in your own mind because things are tough. Like, there's always going to be tough times in marriage because while both parties, ideally, if they're children of God, are being sanctified, we're not there yet. (laughs) We're still two sinners. Marriages are going to be rough. But seek help. Understanding that God wants the marriage to thrive, he wants it to flourish, he is fully invested in it and values the marriage relationship above all other human relationships. Understand that and know that that seeking help is the appropriate path. But when you understand what God's desire for marriage is and understand how he views it, the help has to be sought from the right spot. You have to seek help from within the church. Going to an outside psychologist or marriage therapist who doesn't understand God's design for marriage, who doesn't understand his role in it, who doesn't understand the need for sanctification in two broken sinners in order to be able to be unified into a single unit, if they don't understand that, they can't help. Not truly. Seek help from within the church. This church is blessed to have people who, who have a heart for this. Allie and I are taking a class on, on counseling, and there are some, 
some people in this church who that is their gift. They are gifted to help those in need of, of help with marriage. They love doing it. It's what God has, has given them as a ministry. Seek that out because they understand the work of the Holy Spirit. They understand the fact that no matter how rocky a marriage may look, God delights in taking broken and even dead things and healing them. That's what he loves to do for his people. So seek help, but do it from the right place, within the church. And, and finally, this ought to, to bring hope, no matter whether you're on the end of the spectrum of, yeah, we, we need help drastically in our marriage right now, and that's okay, or no matter whether you're in a period of things are better than they've ever been, or somewhere in between that spectrum, Understanding the foundational scriptural view of marriage should bring hope. There's hope to rectify things if they need help because God values your marriage. And if it's good, God still has more to teach you. Even after 62 years, there's probably things you can still learn, and we can learn from them. We need to understand and be grateful for the fact that God has a direct hand in taking you and your spouse if you're married or you and your future spouse and blending you into one single unit that would be used as a witness for God's love for his people because that's why he designed it that way. That's what it is. Our marriages ought to set the church apart from the rest of society. Unfortunately, in the, the larger church in America, the divorce rate is, is not significantly different from the rest of society. And to that, Jesus would say, quit it. <laughs> they ought to look at us and go, the divorce rate's almost zero within the church. How does that happen? That ought to be the witness within Christ's church. And it can be, because God values that. He wants to help. He wants to heal. He wants to strengthen and grow, even if there's not a significant problem there. He still has more for you. That ought to be the hope we have in understanding his, his view of marriage. I'll leave you with this, this poem I thought was applicable. There is a wonder deep and strong when watching birds in flight. As we gazed upon the eagle, he gazed on us with keener sight. Though built of bone and muscle, sinew, flesh, and feather, regally he soars aloft in the river of the weather. And with a breath of clarity... As we watched him wheel and glide, I knew his mystery was true to my wife and I applied. For wind and wing had been designed to make him glide on feather. Even so, I saw my wife and I were designed to work together. Like wing and wind and ruffled feather and light and hollowed bone, together we can reach new heights we could never reach alone. Many things must work in tune to launch the eagle's story, and my wife and I must soar together to give God his highest glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. You gave us in marriage a, a shadow of your love for us, a shadow of the covenant that exists between you and your people. And though it can never be as strong and pure this side of eternity as your covenant, yet it is special and majestic and wondrous in your sight and ought to be in ours. 
Father, I pray that those who are married in this room would, would seek unity in their marriages in, in a way that follows your desire, that the two would not be two, but one. Father, we pray for your help through your spirit to do this because we know that in our own broken and sinful state, we're more concerned with ourselves than with our spouse or with your witness. May you continue to bring us more into Christ's likeness that not only in our own lives would we bring you glory, but in our marriages it would be something that, that shines as a light on a hill to our culture today. That knows nothing of persistent, self-sacrificial, unconditional covenant love. May your church be that area where they see that. Help us to seek forgiveness between us and our spouse, that we would be humble, seek your purity, and in so doing, we would bring glory to you. I pray for the rest of our morning this morning. Tom, as he brings the rest of your word, give us focus. May we humbly submit ourselves to your word that we may be fashioned more into your likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.